all engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. This week, scientists grow beating hearts in a laboratory culture dish. We'll hear how, why the plastic you recycle isn't going where you think it is and why a long working week might be the death of you. Plus, we're tuning into the science of birdsong, including parents who talk to their eggs to warn them of high temperatures and how traffic noise means young birds are taking longer than they used to to learn new songs. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. In a world first, scientists at Vienna's Institute of Molecular Biotechnology have managed to grow miniature hearts from stem cells in a laboratory culture dish. The key, according to Sasha Menjen, who led the work, is adding the right growth signals at the right time. This results in clusters of stem cells organising themselves into a hollow chamber with an inner and an outer lining and heart muscles between the two that beat. It's early days, but this will enable researchers to study the basis of some common heart diseases and ultimately it takes us a step closer to growing a new heart from scratch. What we are looking at is essentially a a chamber-like structure, a heart left chamber, and we essentially managed to recapitulate its development, how it develops from a stem cell-like state we find in also, also in a human embryo. You mentioned the embryo. The heart's actually one of the first organs to form, isn't it? Yes. So it's the first organ to form. It already starts beating on day 23 of human development, which means that is the stage of development where we cannot even look at uh, really in detail. This is when we know that congenital heart defects arise, and they are quite common. About 2% of all children that are born have one. But what is even more important is that these developmental mechanisms, they are also very important later on for disease. For example, for regeneration or their response to injury, for example, how our heart grows and also how our heart fails. All these developmental mechanisms are involved. You've done this from stem cells. People have used stem cells to build cardiac and also blood vessel tissue in dishes before to do this sort of thing. So what's different with what you've achieved? The difference is that we managed to figure out how we can add specific molecules to the media where these stem cells grow and tell them how to build a heart by themselves. This is how our organs develop, and this is what now for the first time we managed to do with the, with the human heart. What people previously managed to do is to instruct the cells, the stem cells, how to form a different types uh, or cell types that we find in the heart, like the muscle cells or the, or, the, or the cells of the vasculature. But what they didn't figure out is how to form the whole structure. Can you talk me through then the, the entire sequence of the experiments, what you do with what? in order to make this happen? We put our stem cells into a plate that has 96 wells. And and, and then in each well, one of these cardioids, as we call them, starts developing as we give the cells the instructions. Essentially, we're giving the molecules at very specific times during a time course of seven days. 
And these molecules tell the cells, okay, I need to build a chamber that is beating, that has an inner lining as a real heart would have, and also an outer layer as a real heart would have. And, uh, and this is what we achieved. And the molecules that you put in, they're sort of growth factors or chemical cues that, that are the, the nudges that tell the cells, now do this, now do this. Exactly. They are proteins that will bind certain receptors on the cells and will signal. We call them signaling molecules. And this is exactly what we do. Yeah. And when you look at these mini chambers, these cardioids, as you're dubbing them, down a microscope, do they look like if you were to take a piece of heart out of a developing embryo, it would really look like that? Yeah, this was exactly the amazing thing. So the first time when we saw it, I just couldn't believe because this is exactly how an embryo in heart would look like. It's hollow, it's this beating chamber. It was quite amazing to look at it, also together with the students. Now you know how to do this. What can you do with it? As in, what are the applications? A main application, we could recapitulate a, a genetic defect of the heart where development of the chamber is impaired. This is related to the problem most... A severe genetic defect you can have actually in children uh, that affects the heart, which should be called the hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And, and there, basically, the whole left ventricular chamber of the heart gets obliterated. And these kids, they then need surgery within a week. Otherwise, they will die. And now, really, for the first time, we can uh, start looking into the mechanism of, of that particular congenital defect. Would you do that by taking stem cells from children who have that disorder or a family history of that disorder and using their stem cells so the, the heart, the cardioid that develops in your system essentially looks like a mini version of what happens in reality. Exactly. So this is what our next step is going to be now. We're going to take uh, cells from these patients, reprogram them into the stem cell state, and then we're going to try to re-enact, recapitulate the disease, what happened actually, what went wrong in these, in these kids. And then that, of course, means that maybe we can also try to find a way to either predict this or figure out why is this happening, uh, etc. Because, as I said, cardiac defects, they are much more common than other defects, and we don't really know why. But soon, hopefully, thanks to work like that, we will. That was Sesha Menjan, and isn't that just an amazing piece of work? Incredible. We've remarked many times on this programme that the world is producing a lot of plastic waste, millions of tonnes of it per year, in fact. And if you look at plastic per person rates, the UK is a major culprit. Now, you might think, well, that's OK, because we have recycling programmes here in the UK for plastic cartons and bottles. But a new report from the charity Greenpeace says that is not solving the problem because a lot of that plastic is being sent abroad. The report claims that well over half the plastic we think gets recycled is actually exported to countries like Turkey, where mostly... It just gets dumped or burned. When investigators travelled to Turkey, the scenes they discovered were truly shocking. Phil Sanson spoke to Greenpeace's Sam Chetton-Welsh. What we found is widespread and extensive evidence of UK supermarket plastic being dumped and burned in southwest Turkey. You know, Tesco cheese packets, yoghurt pots. We found piles of it on fire causing breathing problems for people in the local area. We found the rubbish leaking into watercourses, into streams, into rivers, and that will eventually make its way onto beaches and into the Mediterranean. I mean, this is really shocking. How on earth is rubbish from UK supermarkets ending up by the side of the road burning in Turkey? 
it's a complicated story and I would give a big caveat that this is a very complicated system. It's very opaque. There's a lot of crime and illegality. The best that we as Greenpeace can surmise about what's happening is say you've got your milk carton or your yogurt pot, you wash it, you put it in the recycling. What happens then is it goes to a materials recovery facility and that's where it gets sorted into waste that's kind of clean enough to actually be mechanically recycled again or it gets bailed up with what's called mixed plastic waste what we found is that a lot of the clean stuff is going into big containers to be exported and then mixed up with all of those mixed bales of plastic waste and then it gets sent off to countries like turkey are uk companies paying the people to transport it to turkey or are they kind of selling the waste so that the people in turkey can kind of get the good stuff out and maybe make a buck off that there are layers of different people paying different types of money. The supermarkets, for example, they do pay because they buy these certificates to kind of confirm, hey, I'm Tesco, I'm Coke, I've made this much plastic this year, so I need to pay for this amount to have it recycled. The issue with that is there's no checks on the Turkish side, so it's a lot cheaper for companies through this chain to pay for it to be exported. At the Turkish side, for example, it will be bought by a company who can then make money off extracting the valuable material from these mixed contaminated bales, and then essentially without on the hush hush dumping all the rest of it. Is that how this is going wrong then that people on the UK side are just abandoning their responsibility by giving away the plastic and saying all right I'm sure you're going to recycle it and the people who take it go sure thing yeah I'll do that and then just do whatever they want. Yeah there's widespread fraud and corruption within the system which is a big problem but really Greenpeace's diagnosis is that at the heart even if you improved enforcement and monitoring you'd never really be able to fix the problem because there's just too much stuff there's just too many containers too much of it is non-recyclable you know no one's got a plan to reduce the amount of waste that we produce in the first place and that is how you stop this problem we always think of it like imagine a bathtub you know if your bathtub was overflowing you wouldn't grab a mop and bucket, you would turn the tap off. And that's what we need to do with the waste system, deal with the waste that's arising at the beginning of this process. That's the only way you're ever going to fix it. Right. But how big is the problem? Is this just a small issue that's only part of the plastic that I'll put in my recycling bin? Or is it the majority? The UK exports two and a half Olympic sized swimming pools of plastic waste every single day. That is not a small problem. That is something that we need to take responsibility for. Greenpeace estimates only 10% of all UK household plastic packaging actually gets recycled here in the UK. But look, ultimately, in our view, a kilogram of exports being dumped on another country, on a poorer country, on communities of colour to deal with, leaking into their water courses, causing breathing problems in their local communities is completely unacceptable. Never mind two and a half Olympic-sized swimming pools of plastic every single day. This is something we need to take responsibility for. Government has been relying on this as part of their waste policy for such a long time. Plastic waste exports have increased by sixfold since 2002. And what we're saying is stop dumping our waste in other countries. Stop relying on this to deal with waste that we should be cleaning up ourselves. Firstly, by reducing the amount of plastic that we make and use here in the UK. 
I mean, what am I to do as just someone who kind of tries to recycle? Is this plastic recycling system broken? What I really don't want people to take away from this is that they should stop recycling, that they should give up, that they should be cynical about the system, that they shouldn't keep doing their bit, because that habit is going to be crucial for us in the future, you know, the habit of washing stuff and and doing the right thing. But recycling on its own is never going to be able to solve this problem. We are simply making and using far too much stuff. Sam Chetham-Welsh, and you can read Greenpeace's report, which is titled Trashed, on their website. Got a biological brain buster or a chemical query? Ask the naked scientists. I just wanted to know about sleep paralysis. Is it a disorder or condition and can it be cured? How much energy is in moonlight? And could solar panel technology be used to capture this energy? When you cook food with any alcohol, how much, if any, percentage of the alcohol stays behind? Every Friday, The Naked Scientist and Cape Talk unravel the science behind those weird and wonderful questions you've always wanted to ask. Download and listen for free at thenakedscientist.com slash ask or simply search and subscribe to Ask The Naked Scientist on your favourite podcast app. Still to come, how working long hours puts you at higher risk of strokes and heart attacks and... We're going to be tuning in to the science of songbirds. Climate change poses a serious threat to thousands, if not millions, of species around the planet, but two, the white-tailed swallow and Ethiopian bush crow, are particularly at risk. Scientists predict that both of these birds will suffer an extreme loss of their native habitats, even under the most optimistic global warming scenarios. Cambridge University's Andrew Bladen has been leading the study. Andrew, why these two species in particular? These two species are really interesting because they have incredibly small global ranges. Both of them are are only found in a tiny area of southern Ethiopia. And the interesting thing is that both species, the area which, which they're found is cooler and drier than surrounding areas. And this seems to be the determining factor in limiting their distribution. And how did you realize that there was this threat? For a long time, scientists were puzzled as to what was going on with these species. So when they were first described, people sort of talked about the fact that the habitat inside and outside of their range all looked the same and there was no obvious reason why they would be found in only one location. And then we started a project a few years ago now uh, looking into this and looked at how temperature impacts the behaviour of the birds. So we looked at the foraging behaviour of the Ethiopian bush grove and found that when temperatures get too high, they really struggle to forage, they don't get enough food. And for the white-tailed swallow, it appears that there's some impact on their breeding success. So when, when it gets warmer, they struggle to breed and the nests start to fail. And so this begins to suggest that when you get to the edge of their distribution in areas where it's generally a bit warmer, they struggle to survive. And that's why they're not there. And then we underpin that with some big distribution models where we compared climate in the areas where they're found and the areas where they're not found um, and found that, indeed, the areas where they're not found are warmer and a bit wetter than the areas where they are. Can you use models like that then to look at ways or explore ways in which you might be able to reverse some of the threats or, or find alternative places for them to live? Yeah, so, so one thing that this, these models allow us to do is to, is to look at the areas that are likely to remain the most suitable. So we can project these models into the future under different climate scenarios and see how the climate is likely to change and which areas are going to remain the most suitable for the species. And those areas are probably the places that we want to target for conservation, i.e. for 
for protection of the, the habitat, perhaps for habitat uh, improvement and, and mitigation strategies to try and create the sort of optimal habitat that maybe provides cooler environments for the species. But the problem is that we're talking about such a small area and such a rapid rate of change that actually the suitable climate is probably just going to disappear too quickly. So the other kind of option is to then start looking at, well, where else in the world might the climate be suitable? And can we introduce them into a different habitat? But that comes with its own sort of set of risks um, and is quite controversial. Presumably these animals are just the canaries in the coal mine in many respects, aren't they? There must be thousands to millions of species similarly imperiled by climate change with very, very rigid constraints on where they can exist. And it's just going to be an impossibility for us to find new homes and then rehome quite that many species. Yeah, so the real advantage of these two species is because their range is so small um, and, and appears to be entirely predicted by these climate factors, it's very easy for us to build these models and sort of say, well, this is what's what's driving their distribution. For a lot of species, they will be similarly threatened by climate change. But if they have wider distributions, there might be an area where they're sort of actually limited by unsuitable habitat and an area where they're, they're actually limited by some competition with other species. And so it makes it harder for us to predict what's going on. So one op- op- option that we have with these species is by actually monitoring the rate at which they decline. Um, in the coming years, we can try and validate the models that we've built. And that could be really important because these models are really commonly used for predicting what's going to happen to species in the future. Um, but we're not, we don't actually have very good data on how well they produce those predictions. And so if we can, if we can use data from the swallow and the bush grow to, uh, to validate these models and validate the predictions they make over the next 20 or 30 years, we might be able to apply that to other species where we're working with a slightly wider time window. So for these two species, we're looking at the potential disappearance of their entire distribution within the next 40 or 50 years. Whereas for other species where we might be talking about 80 or 100 years, we've got a bit more time to think, well, if we can validate these models, we know that they're accurate and then we can work with what they're telling us to try and better conserve other species. A silver lining to what is, though, a very, very dark cloud. Yes, indeed. It's quite sobering to work on two species for sort of six or seven years and then to realize that the end result of this is actually they're probably both going to go extinct and there's there's very little we can do about it. Andrew thank you um, for that sobering but very informative message that's uh, Andrew Bladen and he just published that work in the journal PLOS One. Compared with days gone by we are tending to work longer and longer hours he says, sitting here on a Sunday evening making this radio programme. But is our health paying the price for all this increased productivity? Scientists at the World Health Organisation think so, and they've now managed to put some numbers on this problem. They've done it by combining survey and mortality data from 10 million people around the world and calculated in the process that some 745,000 people died in 2016 because of strokes and heart attacks that were caused... Yes, they did use that word, caused by working long hours. Eva Higginbotham spoke with the lead author on the study, Frank Pegger. 40 professors from around the world looked at a number of different categories of long working hours. And when they crunched the numbers and looked at all the available evidence, they found that there was strong evidence that when people work 55 hours or more per week, their risk for ischemic heart disease and stroke is increased. And indeed, that's very common in health science, and we talk about a risk limit here. What's the 
mechanism or what's the link between working long hours and having a stroke or having heart disease? The first link is in a way a direct pathway whereby people who work long hours and all of us who have worked long hours or know somebody who has worked long hours has experienced this, basically feel stressed. Our body has a physiological, uh, physical response to working long hours. It releases stress hormones and these stress hormones directly damage the heart or the brain and thereby they can directly uh, produce heart disease or stroke. A second pathway through which long working hours can cause these diseases is by them increasing other risk factors for heart disease and stroke. So for example, people who work long hours uh, may as a result also be more likely to smoke or to drink alcohol or have sleep deprivation and this in turn could then cause a, a heart disease or stroke event. Is this true for all kinds of jobs or just for jobs that we might traditionally think are very stressful? I'm thinking things like manual labor or people who are like CEOs running big companies who are under high stress and work long hours. We've done some analyses to look at the available data that is broken down by occupations and by industrial sectors. This is how we divide the world. And we found that everybody who works uh, long hours seems to be at the same level of increased risk in as far as the evidence is currently available. I'm wondering if there's an age factor here, because people will sometimes say, you know, work hard in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and then you'll be able to relax when you're older. Do we know if working long hours at any stage in your life is damaging, or is it just later or just earlier? We did not see differences in risk across age groups. In other words, if you're working long hours when you're 20, or if you're working long hours when you're 60, it makes very little difference for your actual increase in risk of having a cardiovascular disease or stroke event. However, what we do know is when it comes now again to the number of people dying, cardiovascular disease, so heart disease, stroke, is concentrated specifically amongst middle-aged and older people. So when we ran our estimates and we did our modeling, we found, uh, not surprisingly, that more people died from long working hours in these middle-aged and older working age groups than younger people did. But to be clear, the risk is the same. And is this a global problem? Did you find that there were some places that had a higher resulting risk from longer hours versus others? What we found is that when we looked at the distribution of the number of deaths, for example, from uh, these two conditions, from stroke and heart disease, that these were particularly high in two regions, in the Western Pacific region and in Southeast Asia. There were other regions where the numbers were much lower, for example, in Europe and also in, in North America. So there's clearly a geographic patterning. Is that because there are more people in those regions who work those hours or the type of work that they're doing or other factors in their lifestyle? Do we know? One part of the puzzle and one part of this explanation is that there's definitely a higher proportion of people working long hours in these regions. And if you ask why that is, one reason is that these regions have a number of low and middle income countries for which we know that a large proportion of the workforce of people working are in an informal economy. So they do not have formal employment contract. 
That means often these are workers who are disadvantaged, so they may not have a choice but work multiple jobs at a time, which of course means clocking in more and more hours. What can we do to try and stem this problem? We recommend four arms of action. First, laws and policies to be put in place by governments, but also employers and workers to limit numbers of hours of work per week to healthy limits. A second area of intervention would be to make sure that working time arrangements are more balanced. For example, workers can be offered working time or can be working on flexi time. A third intervention, and this is very important for workers in the informal economy, so those without formal employment contract, they are not covered by the protections of social security and employment that are normally offered to workers in the formal economy. So here we need to, countries are encouraged to offer social protection floors. These are anti-poverty programs, which enable these workers to not have to work long hours and multiple jobs in order to survive. And fourth and finally, we recommend that all workers have access to occupational health services, where occupational health physicians can make sure that the numbers of hours worked stay below the unhealthy limits. Let's hope it's possible. Frank Pegger there, he was speaking with Eva Higginbotham and that report was published in Environment International. Time now for our mailbox where you get in touch with your thoughts and feedback and Soren from Denmark has done just that and written to chris at thenakedscientist.com off the back of our programme a couple of weeks ago on fermented foods. Specifically, the item he wanted to respond to concerned cheese and bizarre dreams which our contributor said was an unlikely connection, but other people have claimed is a thing. Soren points out that it is possible that consuming blue cheese before bed used to give people funny dreams because before pasteurisation and the use of clean fungi and moulds to make cheese, blue cheese could have contained a bit of everything. And since fungi are very potent at producing all kinds of, as he puts it, funny molecules, the most famous today being psilocybin, that's the ingredient in magic mushrooms, perhaps, he wonders, people were inadvertently consuming some funky chemicals that gave them particularly interesting dreams back in the good old days. If you would like to get in touch in the meantime, and thank you, Soren, you can drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also use the question template on our website that's at nakedscientist.com forward slash question meanwhile if we've inspired you to want to follow up on any of the items we've been covering so far there are full text transcripts available for all of these interviews on our website that's the nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast as well as the references to the underpinning papers that we've talked about much has changed for business owners managers and staff recently But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And for the rest of the program this week, we're going to tune into the science of songbirds from the time that they spend growing inside their eggs right through to teenagerhood and adult life. 
Now, there are around 5,000 different species of songbird around the world, and together they create a playlist that can easily rival Sony. But most songbirds don't just sing. They also make calls and coos to communicate, and in recent years it's come to light that these calls can be very important early in a bird's life. In fact, before it's even hatched in some cases, as Eva Higginbotham has been hearing. One evening, recently, I went for a walk in Cambridge on a small path next to a stream shaded by tall trees covered in leaves and surrounded by grasses, bushes and, of course, nettles. And along with the green I could feel under my feet, I could hear what sounded like an incredible array of birds singing and calling to each other, likely male birds, singing to defend their territory and to try and seduce the ladies. That's how we traditionally think about how and why songbirds communicate. But a few years ago, a scientist studying zebra finches, these small, somewhat stripy Australian songbirds, discovered something. So they have different sorts of calls, but they mostly talk to each other to sort of coordinate the parental care. That's Milene Marriott from Deakin University, and she was studying how mum and dad zebra finches chat to each other to figure out how long each of their egg incubation shifts were going to be. This is what that conversation can sound like. Squeaky. But then Milene noticed something unusual. And I also noticed that when a parent is sitting by itself in the nest, it produced a call that was really different to those other call. And because it was alone with the egg, I wonder whether it was talking to the egg. So it's really fast and really high pitch. Which is surprising for that species because they tend to have very nasal calls. But that one, yeah, is really, really quite high pitch. It sounds like crickets, really. <laughs> she set about trying to understand, first of all, what this unusual call could mean. So I did a lot of recordings in the nest and quickly became apparent that this was only happening when it was hot. And because the weather is so viable in Geelong, I could very clearly see the link between that call and the temperature outside. So it's only when the parents were too hot that they were producing that call. So Milen snuck out the real eggs and replaced them with fake ones. Then she incubated the eggs she'd stolen and either played back recordings of heat calls or just the normal parental chatter that the birds made, whatever the weather. We found that having heard those heat calls before hatching then changed the development of the chicks after hatching. And so the one exposed to heat call tended to reduce their growth in the heat whereas the ones that were exposed to another contact call from their parents tended to get bigger when it was warmer. At hatching, the two groups weighed the same, just one gram. But within 24 hours, there was a difference in size, and this just kept getting bigger, until by the end of the nesting period two weeks later, there was a 25% difference in body weight between the two groups. This opposing growth strategy seemed puzzling at first, But then, being small in hot weather can be advantageous, as it allows animals, us included, to dissipate the heat better. Also, growing itself requires quite a lot of energy, and so creates quite a bit of heat. Milen realised that the heat calls were telling the embryos, don't grow too quickly when you hatch. But how? 
So we don't know the details yet, but obviously we are really interested in finding out. So looking into neurobiology, there are actually some connections in the brain that go directly from the auditory center to the center that control emotion and hormones production. And we know from adults, for example, that it is those connections that trigger spontaneous response to sound. The question was, did this growth difference actually translate into a more successful bird? After they grew up, we just let them breed because we wanted to know whether that strategy of reducing the growth in the heat could be beneficial. And we found that the birds that had reduced their growth in the heat were producing more babies. And we also found that those individuals, when they were adults, they were preferring hotter nests to breed in. So it does seem to have changed them on the long term. And Milen realised that the heat call had a benefit for the parents too. When the parents are calling, it's actually a special form of panting. So when the birds are too hot, they pant, like the dogs do. And that's when the heat call is produced. Experiments showed that producing the heat call cools the bird more than just their regular panting. And this also provides a potential mechanism for how this behaviour could have evolved. So parents would produce those call to cool down in the nest when it's really hot and during a heat wave and just because of the benefit that it brings to the offspring then that can be selected for and it becomes more and more common and so eventually the parents turn this call into a signal because they also benefit from their offspring being higher quality in, in hot weather. And for the embryos listening to what's going on outside plays an important role in hatching too. They all use sound to know when is the best time to hatch. So they can synchronise hatching between the embryos in the clutch or a predator arriving and, and coming to eat the egg. So sound is used during development a lot more than we thought initially when we started this project. But there has also been some studies in seagull where they found that embryos that have been exposed to alarm call that the parents do when there are predators around also change the development of the chicks. And it's likely that it's quite common, but you just haven't looked at it, basically. That zebra finches and perhaps other birds do this might suggest that they're going to be a little more adept at surviving climate change than some other species. Here in Cambridge, though, I'm still likely listening to lonely bachelors looking for a mate to start a nest with. Isn't that a fascinating story? Eva Higginbotham was talking to Milen Mariette. She's at Australia's Deakin University. Once birds make it out of the nest, songbirds have to set about learning their songs. Some birds, like parrots, are what we call open-ended, lifelong learners because they can continue learning more and more sounds over the course of their lifetimes. But others, on the other hand, have only a very specific period corresponding roughly to teenagerhood when they can learn new songs, and zebra finches are an example of this. Mimi Gao, who's at Tufts University, has been studying how it happens. So how do they do it, Mimi? Well, vocal learning in songbirds shares many similarities with vocal learning in humans, and it occurs in two phases. In the initial sensory phase of learning, birds are just listening, and they're forming an auditory memory of an adult tutor. 
And then in a second phase, known as sensory motor learning, they begin to practice. And the sounds that they make first are quite variable, much like the babbling in human infants. But they're listening to themselves as they're singing and they're trying to correct it. And so they continue practicing thousands of times a day until they're able to make an accurate copy of the tutor song. Why teenagerhood? Why don't they do that from the get-go? Well, initially, the areas of the brain that are important for producing song are not totally wired up. So the connections aren't there yet. The auditory areas are there and functioning, so they're listening. But around 25 or 30 days, those connections from this song motor region form the connections with the next region and the birds begin to vocalise. Interesting that it's the adolescent period of their life and we're very familiar with uh, human adolescents, especially if they're male, doing all kinds of extraordinary extravagant things to try to get the attention of the opposite sex. You've sent us a couple of clips of what happens with the birds you've been studying. First of all, we're going to hear the sound of a, a male just singing. Well, you'll hear a short clip where the male sings a couple of repetitions of his song. And he knows how to sing it, but sometimes it's a little variable. And he might also vary the timing, so there might be some pauses. And we're going to contrast that with what happens when you introduce a female into the mix. So the male's aware that there's a female there. Yes, we think of this as a high-intensity performance song. He sings faster, he sings more of the repeats. It's just a higher song rate. But this is like, you know, doing extra flips on your skateboard to try to get the girls interested. Definitely. The male is trying to get the female's attention, and he's singing his best version of song. And even though we can't hear it, the female can hear subtle differences between when the male is practicing and when he's performing. And it turns out that the performance song is much more stereotyped from one trial to the next. You mentioned earlier about how the brain wires itself up and and then reaches this point at which it's optimally wired in order to start being able to acquire songs and then memorise them. Do we now understand, though, which bits of the brain are doing that? There are two or three parts of the brain that are involved in this. Song motor areas that are producing the sound, auditory areas that are used for evaluating the performance of the song, And then there's a cortical basal ganglia circuit that we know is important for learning the song and for being able to change it from moment to moment, but also over the course of learning. Are they the same bits of the brain that I'm physically using to talk to you? Yes, there are many similarities. Basal ganglia circuits are found in all vertebrates and they're important for motor learning and for motor performance in all vertebrates. And one thing that makes songbirds special is that, like humans, there are connections from the cortex to those motor neurons that then project to the parts of the body for producing the sound. And does that mean if you know which bits of the brain are doing this, you can actually potentially manipulate it and and thereby prove that that's how the birds are doing what they're doing? Yes, there have been a number of studies to manipulate either those motor areas that are responsible for producing the song or this cortical basal ganglia circuit that's important for learning and for changing the song. And can you therefore physically change how a bird sings? If you were to go in and and, and fiddle with those brain areas, would the song change? 
Yes. So for example, we can put in certain drugs into the brain to change the level of activity in that part of the brain. And if we do this in the cortical basal ganglia circuit and we activate it, so we cause it to fire more and to send signals at a higher rate, then we can drive the changes in the song and cause the bird to change the performance of individual syllables, for example, altering the pitch. We can also change the sequence of the song. And most recently, we've shown that we can cause birds to stutter so that they'll repeat certain elements of their song a small number of times before moving on to the next syllable. So we can learn from birds what might be going on in humans. Mimi, thank you very much indeed. That's Mimi Gao. This week we're looking at the science of birdsong and shortly we'll hear about how human influences like traffic noise are affecting how birds sing. First though, how did birds evolve to sing in the first place? With us now, Eric Jarvis, who's at Rockefeller University. He's an expert on the evolution of the process of birdsong. How long have birds been about, Eric? The uh, songbirds themselves have been around for about 35 or so million years and the parrots have been around for 50 million years and the hummingbirds, who another vocal learning group, have been around for also about, you know, sometime between 30 and 50 million years. It's a long old time then. Have they been singing throughout that time? And if so, how do you know that? Yeah, so we took all the genetic code of all these different species, the, what we call the entire genome, and we looked and figured out who's related to who. And based upon generating the bird family tree, uh, we can figure out how long ago did they appear on the planet, basically. How long ago did they evolve? And... Uh, and everybody that can learn the imitation of these sounds in these different birds evolved about 30 to 50 million years ago. We were just hearing from Mimi about the underpinning neuroscience, what's going on in the brains of these animals to endow them with the ability to do what they do. So if you look across the, the spectrum of bird evolution, do they all converge on having exactly the same structures and circuits? And if so, why, why do just some of them sing songs and others just make noises? When you look at all birds and even humans and non-human primates and frogs and so forth, all of them have the auditory pathway that Mimi was talking about to perceive sound, like your dog can understand the word sit. But only the species like us humans and these songbirds have these other brain pathways she was talking about for producing the sounds. And just like you asked, that brain pathway, even though it's in only in a few groups of animals like us humans and songbirds, it evolved in a very similar way. Uh, consisting of a motor pathway to produce the sounds and this forebrain loop that she talked about to actually imitate the sounds you produce. Could, therefore, birds that aren't naturally songbirds be actually taught to sing then? Not unless they have this uh, forebrain pathway that controls the production to imitate the sounds. You would have, it would have to evolve it or experimentally you would have to induce it. So a seagull, for instance, couldn't sing like a zebra finch? Right, exactly. So a seagull uh, can understand and listen to a zebra finch song or other seagull vocalizations and maybe understand the meaning. But the seagull cannot actually imitate another bird's song, unlike uh, the zebra finch, which can. Now, given that birds evolved from dinosaurs, does that mean then that dinosaurs were vocal in the same sort of way? Were they probably singing like songbirds, some of them? Yeah, so the vocal learning birds evolved between 30 and 50 million years ago. But birds go back well beyond 100, 200, something million years ago. But bird brains and birds themselves are actually dinosaurs. And there's more and more evidence to show that the brain regions that support the vocal learning circuits in birds, that is the subdivisions in which they are housed, 
those subdivisions you, you can find in all birds and in crocodiles and in lizards and in turtles. So I think dinosaurs had the capacity to evolve vocal learning. Whether that happened or not, we don't know. But still, they did have the capacity in terms of the brain subdivisions. Well, they were certainly very musical, weren't they? I mean, think about T-Rex. Sorry, bad joke. But um, <laughs> why, why I wanted to bring up T-Rex was this whole question also, because it's not just about sound, is it? It's all about rhythm as much as anything else. So is there anything special about birds' brains that mean they're very good at timing so they can count beats, get the rhythm right? Yeah, good question. So it was shown uh, about 10 years ago, actually, that only vocal learning species can learn how to dance. And what I mean by that is learn to move their body muscles to a rhythmic beat of music, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, to the downbeat, for example, on the one. Other animals will respond to human music, but they won't be able to synchronize their body rhythms to the music. And what's going on here? I hypothesize that once the vocal learning pathway evolved to take sounds that you hear and imitate it through your larynx, your, your vocal organ, what happened is that the hearing information contaminated the rest of the brain, and not only is it influencing your vocal organs to produce the sounds, is it influencing your hands, your chest, your legs, in a rhythmic fashion that you don't see in the other species that can't imitate. I had a friend at university who used to play her budgie meatloaf spat out of hell. Yeah, it used to dance as well. Eric, thanks very much indeed. That's Eric Jarvis. Well, finally, we've heard songbirds singing and learning how to sing, and they've been doing it, as Eric was telling us, for potentially millions of years. But now there's evidence that in recent years, us noisy humans are seriously disrupting this process. And Sue Ann Zollinger, who's at Manchester Metropolitan University, has been studying how birdsong is changing in response to human influences. What sorts of sounds are we making that are particularly disruptive, Sue Ann? Well, lots of noise that annoys us as humans is also what's interfering with birds being able to hear and properly learn, like traffic noise, airline noise, and other kinds of industrial noise pollution that makes it harder for us to communicate also when we're exposed to it. How do we know that's going on? We know birds do a lot of things differently in in noisy places. So if you look at the songs of birds that live in noisy cities... Their songs have started to diverge a little bit from what we hear in their traditional habitats like quiet forests or grasslands. And those kind of changes depend on the species. So lots of species around the world start to sing slightly higher pitch in cities. And that's thought to help them avoid the loudest part of that low frequency rumble that you get from road traffic noise. Lots of birds we know uh, sing louder but they're not able to sing as much louder as they need to to be able to really belt it out over the din of that traffic noise often. And sometimes they also change when they sing. So sometimes in really busy urban areas, birds start to sing earlier in the morning or later at night to try to avoid those peaks of traffic that you get at rush hour. So they're compensating, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem every time. You've That's been right. doing some experiments so they, on this, yeah. haven't you? And you, you sent us some clips of this. So let's have a listen to these. The first one that you've got here is, is, is the gold standard. And perhaps you could begin by just telling us how you did the experiments and what this gold standard song that we're going to hear is. We wanted to look at how the noise would influence development. So during that process that Mimi was just talking about, 
where they have to go through this process of listening, learning, and imitating the song that they hear. And so we had half of our birds growing up in a quiet room and half of them in a, a room filled with traffic noise like you would experience in a city. And we wanted all the birds to have the same opportunity. So this golden tutor that we're going to listen is the song that all of the birds heard. So the first group of birds you mentioned had a pristine environment, as it were. They were exposed to that song we just heard. They had to learn it. And this is the result, I presume you're going to play for us now, of of them learning that song. That's right. This is an example of a, a juvenile from that quiet room. What I hope you can listen to in this song is that he doesn't sing exactly the same song, but he copies a lot of those syllables that have the same kind of rich harmonic structure you can hear in the tutor. And now we're going to delve into the what happens when you expose them to motorway noise. This is the, the traffic group. What are we listening for this time? This guy, he doesn't copy any of those syllables. So it's a little hard for us to hear as humans because we don't have the good ability to hear those fine differences. But what I want you to listen for is that none of these acoustic structure is the same. So it sounds a little more rough and click-like. It's kind of harmonically not as nice. So an example of uh, of a, a less good learner caused by exposure to noise pollution. How does that actually affect the bird's downstream though. So Anna, what what objective evidence have we got that it is? Well, we know from some field studies that females in urban areas prefer the songs of males from quiet areas. So that if you give them a choice where they have a, a option to select one or the other, that they they prefer the song like the traditional songs and not the ones that are shifted to adapt to traffic noise. So if males aren't able to sing good quality songs because of disruption of learning by traffic noise, that they're going to have less success in attracting good quality females and defending good quality territories. And presumably then that means that that could unpick the the beneficial effects of what natural selection is trying to do to improve the, the quality of the species. You'll end up selecting poorer quality males. Yeah, it could also be you know, that females also need to learn. So they go through this process, even if they don't end up singing the songs, of learning what songs are good. We don't know yet, but it can be that females' preferences and their learning of what songs are good quality is also disrupted by noise. And so it might be that females in noisy areas aren't able to make good choices for good quality. Are we being a bit short-sighted and just focusing only on sound in terms of mate selection here? Are there other potential impacts on birds of, of, of us making noise pollution? Because I know, for instance, if you look at humans, if, if they live near a busy airport or a busy road, they have higher blood pressure because of stress. Is it true for birds that when they have to tolerate us that it causes knock-on effects? Yes, definitely. So that's something that I've been studying in my lab for the last uh, 10 years or so, that we know that birds in urban areas or in even just exposed to noise in a laboratory, that they have disrupted stress physiology, they age faster, there are reductions in reproductive success, so how many successful offspring they can produce. On top of that, by disrupting non-song communication, like alarm call detection, that risks that they are more vulnerable to predation, for example if you don't hear the warning that the predator is more likely to catch you. I'm also thinking of uh, one of our human behaviours is to root 
aircraft, for example, over areas where people aren't. Now, birds are going to make a beeline, if that's the right phrase to use, for areas which are sparsely affected by humans. And so, therefore, are we potentially taking and exporting our noise to them in other ways, which is going to prove equally disruptive? Yeah, that's right, that that we, we know that a lot of uh, areas that are too noisy for humans, we plant up with really lovely habitat looking for birds, uh, trees that are going to protect uh, the humans nearby from those 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 loud noises. And so birds are kind of drawn to those, and we, we kind of consider those almost like an ecological trap that we attract in animals, wildlife, birds to these beautiful looking areas. But that this uh, loud noise actually has very serious consequences on on their their fitness, their ability to uh, thrive and procreate uh, properly there. I never really thought about that impact as well of us creating a honeypot that we, we lure animals towards uh, because we use it as a screen yeah. and in the process we actually lure them into something worse for them. Thank you very much. That's uh, Sue Ann Zollinger from Manchester Metropolitan University. Well, let's finish this week with our question of the week and Adam Murphy has been taking a look into this question from Kelvin. We are told um, not to um, overcook our vegetables because this um, kills the uh, nutrients. Now, if that's the case, why don't we just then um, overcook food that we enjoy and uh, not run uh, the risk of putting on weight? Wouldn't that be nice? You could just cook out anything unpleasant and eat whatever you want to? Sounds too good to be true, which of course means that it probably is. So, to bring us back to Earth, here's Alex White from the British Nutrition Foundation. When food is overcooked, it is certain vitamins that are affected and not the calorie content. This means that overcooking food will not reduce the risk of putting on weight, which is to do with the number of calories you eat, and would instead reduce the amount of some vitamins that are being eaten. When looking to lose or maintain weight, it's important to focus on managing the calories that you eat and trying to be active every day. And calories are just a measure of energy, and if you want to get energy from your food, as well as all the nutrients you need, you can't just bake them out. With nutrient loss when cooking, it's the water-soluble vitamins, the B vitamins and vitamin C, that are most affected. This is because, being soluble in water, they pass more easily into the water that the food is being cooked in than fat-soluble vitamins, like vitamin A and vitamin D. Cooking vegetables is one example where vitamin loss can occur, as vegetables are a source of these vitamins, but are often boiled. But we can limit the loss of vitamins by not boiling the vegetables for too long, using less water when boiling, or by changing the cooking method by steaming instead of boiling vegetables. So don't boil your broccoli, but steam your swedes. However, the loss in vitamins when cooking food is small, and as far as we know, it doesn't affect our health, and therefore the focus should be making sure to eat more fruit and vegetables however they're cooked. We should be going for at least five a day, every day. And as Clifford K points out on the forum, there's another downside to overcooking your food. Eventually, you'll just end up with a lump of charcoal, which isn't very nutritious. Thanks to Alex for giving us food for thought, and next week we are looking at Alan's cool question. I have heard it said many times that no two snowflakes are the same. Given the billions and billions of them that have fallen to Earth, this really does seem unlikely. Since nobody has looked at them all, would you agree with me that the only thing to be said with any certainty 
is that no researcher has ever found to the same. And when he says snowflakes, he's not talking about millennials with a particularly tender disposition. He's talking about frozen water. Can you help? If you have an answer, why not join in the debate on our forum? That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Um, or if you'd like to ask a question of your own, you can send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can use the web form at nakedscientist.com forward slash question. That's it for this week. Eva Higginbotham put the programme together and do join us at the same time next week when we're going to be delving into the science behind the headlines. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.